We're uh, in this Resilient Faith series. You guys been enjoying the series so far? I don't know how many weeks you're into it now, but several weeks going through these epic characters of the Old Testament. Um, you know, I was thinking this last couple of weeks how important resilient faith is, how much we need it right now, especially with the things going on in our world with uh, devastation in Haiti, with the earthquake and the terror in Iran with uh, you know, just everything that's going on there with the instability with their government. Um, and then also just feeling like we kind of took a step back in our war against COVID-19. Um, and then to add to it anything that you're personally coming in here with. Um, my prayer for us this morning has just been simply, Father, make us resilient by the Holy Spirit. Um, give us resilient faith as we've been talking about. Not just continue to talk about it, but actually experience resilience. Um, the dictionary defines resilience as able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. Um, and that's my prayer for us as a people, as a people of God. For all these thousands of years now, we've been known as the people who can withstand and come back from difficult conditions. And so we're believing that uh, for you and for us today. Amen, church? So this week, we're going to be looking at the life and faith of the prophet Jeremiah. So if you have a Bible or access to the scriptures, um, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 20. So you can turn there with me at this time. Now, Jeremiah the prophet, if you don't know much about him, he's actually been known as the prophet of doom, which how would you like that to be said about you? <laughs> or, or the other one is he's been known as the weeping prophet. Um, and his story we're going to look at this morning is from this significant moment in his life and his ministry that I think really represents this resilience of faith as we've been talking about over these last several weeks in the summer. Um, Jeremiah, if you don't know it, his name actually means appointed by God, which is significant for he was God's prophet and appointed by God is what his Hebrew name means. He's a um, hundred years after the prophet Isaiah who came to the nation of Israel. He's prophesying his ministry a hundred years after the prophet Isaiah. He was born into a priest family, so he's a PK, uh, as my four kids are, and so I understand that. He was born to a, a man named Hilkiah, who was a priest out of the city of Anathoth, which is this little town just outside of the city of Jerusalem. He receives this calling from God at about the age of 20 years old. So even just thinking about these young people headed off to camp and the calling of God on some of these young people's lives may emerge out of times like this. You know, a lot of young people receive their calling from God at camp. Um, and so I was just praying ahead of time for future prophets and leaders and pastors and teachers and missionaries and moms and dads of this next generation. Um, so he receives this calling from God at 20 years old, and he continues his ministry specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah for 40 years. He's in this role, a very difficult role, and he fulfills that role into the fall of Judah in 586 BC. And from what we read about Jeremiah, it seems like his temperament, he's actually a rather calm, timid, gentle man by nature, but God has called him to contend on his behalf against the sins of Judah. So he sort of has to act unnaturally as a prophet of God against his timid nature. And in chapter 16, he receives what would probably be discouraging news if you were a young person, and that is the Lord tells Jeremiah, due to the severity of the times in which he was living and the severity of his calling, that he would neither marry nor have children. And so Jeremiah is going to, on top of all things, live a very lonely life. By many scholars' accounts, the prophet Jeremiah was the most persecuted of the Old Testament prophets. He was beaten, thrown in prison, had a big chunk of his manuscripts, his prophetic writings burnt and thrown into a fire by Jehoiakim in chapter 36 of Jeremiah. He was thrown into a slime pit in which he had to be pulled out, had many death threats and was rejected by every facet of society. The religious community, the priests and prophets, the political community, kings and government leaders all rejected him, and even his own friends and family, which would have been most painful of all. From what we can tell, Jeremiah really only has one friend, 
This guy named Baruch, who was a scribe that he actually paid to be his scribe. So you know things are bad when you got to pay one guy to be your friend, and he's only doing it for the money, it seems. His life has been described as one long martyrdom. His life is full of suffering. We're not exactly sure how Jeremiah the prophet died. There's a couple of thoughts that in chapter 43, we see he's hauled down to Egypt. And sometime while he's in Egypt, it's thought that the town he was in, the men of that town, decided to round him up and stone him to death. That's his life. He's called to prophesy to the southern kingdom of Judah, which is a nation on the brink of destruction. He is on record as the last prophet to Judah before they were carried off into Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years. So he finishes his prophetic ministry with his last writing, which is the book of Lamentations. Anybody read the book of Lamentations? It is as it sounds. It's a lament over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Not a book you want to read if you're already feeling a little blue or depressed. Um, I wouldn't recommend that for your devotions. But he's writing much like Jesus sitting over the city of Jerusalem, weeping over the destruction of the city. Actually, in Jesus' ministry, they actually mistook Jesus for Jeremiah the prophet, or he had a ministry like that, the weeping prophet. He's a man of God called to a very tough station in life, a life of sorrow and loneliness, being God's obedient prophet. Now, outwardly, he's obedient and steadfast, And he does what God asks him to do, even at pain of death and threat of death. Now, in chapter 20, we get sort of a glimpse behind the scenes, a glimpse behind the strong front to a struggling soul who's discouraged and wants to quit. And I just want to encourage anyone here that may have come in this morning and maybe you're feeling a bit discouraged with your lot in life, your station in life. Maybe you've even felt like wanting to quit your job, quit your marriage, quit your ministry, quit parenting, quit the project that maybe you felt called to do and you started with so much joy and now the joy has left your heart over. Maybe you just feel discouraged about life and feel like quitting life overall. I believe that Jeremiah 20 wants to speak to that place in our lives. Um, There's this honest moment In Jeremiah's life, and I think that's going to translate, and I pray it would for all of us today. So, chapter 20, are you there yet? Have you have you arrived at Jeremiah 20? Okay, let's read verses one and two so we can start getting some context of what's going on. When the priest Pasher, son of Emer, the official in charge of the temples of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten, put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin, at the Lord's temple. So Pasher, the priest at the time, is persecuting God's prophet because he doesn't like his message. The contemporaries of Jeremiah, the prophets of that day, are identified as false prophets. They were going around telling the priests and the nation, hey, listen, I know Babylon is threatening, but we're going to win. God's got this. And Jeremiah comes on the scene and says, no, we're not going to win. We're going to lose. Destruction is coming. And Pasher, the priest, says, I don't like that message. I prefer the prosperity gospel. I prefer health, wealth, and prosperity. I don't want to hear bad news. And so to persecute God's prophet, he beats him and puts him in the stocks, which was both humiliating and uh, painful. Now, in the time of Jeremiah, There was a set of prophets that are talked about in chapter 6 that were going around, and this was their message, peace, peace. And God says, they say that, but there is no peace. It's, It's a wrong and false message of hope. When Jeremiah comes on the scene, he says, the message is not peace, peace. God tells him in chapter 19, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house, and I want you to buy a clay vessel. And I want you to take that clay vessel and I want you to invite the elders and the priests and the leaders of Judah down to the valley of Hinnom where they were worshiping the false god Baal. 
And I want you to prophesy over them about the coming destruction that's coming on Judah because of their gross idolatry. And to, to vividly illustrate your sermon, I want you to take this pot and I want you to shatter it in the Valley of Hinnom as a vivid illustration of what's about to come on the nation of Israel. And Pasher, uh, the priest, does not like this message of doom. And so he beats Jeremiah, puts him in the stocks on display at the gate of the temple for all to see. Now, the story continues, verse 3. The next day when Pasher released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord's name for you is not Pasher, but terror on every side. For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. I will deliver all the wealth of the city into the hands of their enemies, all its products, all its valuables, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah. They will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who live in your house will go into exile to Babylon. There you will die and be buried, and all your friends to whom you have prophesied these lies. Now you'd think after being beaten and put in the stocks and humiliated, once you were released, maybe you would tone down your message a little bit and think, you know, if I keep talking like this, I'm just going to get in more trouble. But Jeremiah is relentless. He comes to Pasher the priest, the one who had him beaten, put in the stocks and humiliated. After he's released, he then says, God is changing your name. You're no longer going to be called Pasher, which means ease and freedom, but your new name, and if you have an older translation, it probably actually has the Hebrew name, but the Hebrew name means your new name is terror on every side, which is prophetically speaking of what would happen when the Babylonians came in, besieged the city of Jerusalem, surrounded it on every side, and the people would be in terror literally on every side of the city as the Babylonians came in, sacked the city, burned the temple down by fire. And Jeremiah tells Pasher, this is what's going to happen and your new name will reflect it. Now, we look at Jeremiah after being beaten for his message. He just received a bad beat down for this. He's released and he comes right back to the message of coming judgment. And I might call that, and maybe you would agree with me, that's resilient faith. Wow, you can't keep him down. He just keeps faithfully proclaiming the message of Yahweh to the rebellious nation of Judah. But if that's where the story ended, maybe the message this morning would be, Jeremiah was a resilient man of God who obediently followed everything God asked him to do. Whether he was beaten or persecuted, he just kept doing what God asked him to do. Be like Jeremiah and obey God even when it costs you everything. God bless you. Have a great Sunday right? But that is not the full story. The full story is, is that in front of everybody, he puts forth courage and faithfulness, but behind the scenes, talking to God in private, he actually comes undone. He expresses his anger and his difficulty in his life, even wanting to give up. And if you read all of chapter 20, you'll find it's the most honest and disturbing. Because on one, in one moment he's giving praise, in the next moment he's expressing deep despair. So much so that he's like, I wish I had never even been born. So he's talking very honestly to God. In front of the nation, he puts forth a confident front. But behind closed doors, alone with God, he comes undone. And so let's listen to... Jeremiah's lament here in verse 7. So now that he's out of earshot of pasture, he's in his prayer closet. This is how he prays. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach. All day long. So now Jeremiah is telling God, This is how I'm really feeling. 
You called me to do this. I did not want to do this. But you're stronger than me and you have prevailed against me. You persuaded me. In other words, he's saying, God, you tricked me. He literally uses the word, God, you deceived me. I would not have done this if I would have not said yes to this had I known how difficult this ministry was going to be. Have you ever felt deceived by God? You, you said yes to something he asked you to do, and then it's not what you thought it was going to be, and it becomes extremely difficult, and you feel like, man, God, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This Hebrew word that Jeremiah uses for deceived is to be enticed or seduced. The King James the King James Version actually uses the word induced. Now, Jeremiah is being honest. God, I feel tricked. I feel bamboozled, hoodwinked. I feel like you did a bait and switch on me. But let's just step back from this for just a moment and remind ourselves that God doesn't work like this. God doesn't deceive us. God doesn't trick us. But in Jeremiah's prayer life, he realized that you can be honest and it's not always true. You know, in relationships, sometimes you just need to express how you're honestly feeling, even what you're feeling isn't true. It's not true that God deceived Jeremiah. It's not true that he was tricked, but that's how Jeremiah felt. And so there's permission here to be honest with God in even some of your darker emotions. Better to be honest than to pretend to feel a way that you don't really feel. So let's have a conversation about this for a moment. Is it wrong to be angry with God? Maybe some of you have felt that. Anger is a God-given emotion. Anger is not sinful. God made us. He gave us our emotions. Our emotions aren't necessarily wrong. They're neither right or wrong. Emotions just are. You feel how you feel. God gave us feelings, but it's what we do with our emotions that really matter. See, God already knows how you're feeling. You know that? You're not if you're angry with God, you can't hide that from Him. The Bible says that He knows your thoughts from afar off. So if you're here today and disappointed and angry with God, you can tell Him about it. Because in an honest relationship, you have to express how you feel even if how you feel in your honesty isn't true about the situation. Jesus was honest. He tells his followers how he felt. You remember the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and he would go to the cross. He goes to this garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane, if you don't know, it actually means the olive press. It's the place where they would take all the olives harvested there in Israel and they would press them and crush them in order to extract this precious olive oil, which is very apropos considering the crushing that was about to take place on Jesus and he goes into this garden before that moment of crushing to pray. Dr. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus, as he was praying, sweat as it were great drops of blood. There's actually a physiological condition called hematridosis in which at a place of extreme stress, the capillaries in the head can burst and causing blood to actually come forth from the sweat glands. As Jesus is going to his hour of greatest agony, he's honest with his disciples as Jeremiah was about how he was feeling. He tells his disciples in Matthew 26, Verse 38, as he's going into this garden, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, we could say, are those godly emotions? Well, God had those emotions. The divine Son of God had human emotions, and his emotions at that moment as a human being is overwhelmed with sorrow, and he's honest about how he's feeling. But he's not just honest with his disciples. He's also honest with his Father, because as he goes into the garden, remember this prayer that Jesus prays. He said, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. In other words, maybe it should go without saying, Jesus did not want to go to the cross. 
He was not masochistic. He was not like, bring it on, I can take it. He said, Father, is there another way? Because if there is, I don't want to drink this cup of judgment. Jesus, in his humanness, did not want to go through with the cross. But then he says the next important phrase as he expresses, Father, I don't want to do this. I'd rather, do, I'd rather something else happen. Which, by the way, also reminds us that there is no other way by which men must be saved. The crucified Christ was the only way because Jesus asked for another way, a plan B, but the Father said, this is the only way. And so then Jesus says in that prayer, nevertheless, I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to go through it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. In other words, God, I don't like this, but I'm willing to obey you, Father. I'll do what you say. That's honesty in prayer. I heard somebody put it this way. Prayer is most effective when you bring the real you to the real Jesus. When you're really honest in prayer. And by releasing your honest emotions in honest confession, you become free from those dark emotions and the grip that they had on you so that we can step more fully into an intimate relationship with Jesus. We don't want to get stuck in our anger and our emotions. We need, through prayer, to release them. I mean, have you ever had the experience of eating something that was like expired or spoiled? You know, it's like after church, the sermon went a little long. I'm prophetically declaring that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and you get home and you're hungry, you know, and you grab something and you didn't really read the date and you eat it or drink it and you realize later, oh man, that food was rotten. That food was not fit for human consumption. And then your digestive system begins to tell you, hey, you shouldn't have put that inside of us. And you're like, oh man, you know what you got to do, right? What's the only thing you can do to make yourself feel better? You got to barf that stuff up. But it's the thing you don't want to do. I mean, I don't know very many people that like barfing. I hate barfing. The, but, but you know what's worse than barfing is eating rotten food and letting it just wreck you inside, right? I'd rather have that moment of discomfort and the pain and the horror and the nastiness of barfing than I would of just holding that stuff in. That's confession. That's real prayer. It's barfing in the spirit. It's saying, God, my prayers are going to feel like barfing right now, but I'm just going to tell you I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling despondent. I'm feeling discouraged. And God already knows that. You can bring the real you to the real Jesus and not feel like you have to hold anything back. You've got to get it out of you. So how honest would you say your relationship with God is? Are you honest with God? Have you been honest even with yourself about how you're feeling? I read an article this week by a psychology professor named Julie X. Klein. And she's a psychology professor at Case Western Reserve University. And she wrote this article about anger with God. And I think it's worth us looking at and listening to. She writes this about anger with God. About two-thirds of Americans said that they sometimes felt such anger. Studies suggest that when people focus on specific negative life events, for example, economic or family hardships, serious illness, psychological upheaval, physical pain or bereavement, about half of those people report some negative feelings toward God. These negative feelings can include anger as well as more subtle feelings such as frustration, disappointment, and mistrust. In most cases, people become angry at God when they perceive that God is responsible for something harmful or unfair. Now, in a room like this, there's probably some of you who've come in here today and if you were honest with yourself and God, you're disappointed. You're discouraged. Maybe you're even angry with God for how things have gone in your life. And that's okay. It's actually healthy. Now she goes on to say, 
most people wrestle with admitting these feelings. Listen to this. Feeling angry at God is a source of inner conflict. Many of us struggle to acknowledge these dark emotions. Many people see anger toward God as morally wrong. So when we perceive such anger, we may feel uncertain about how to manage the feelings. Now, if you're uncertain of whether or not it's okay to be angry with God, you just need to read the Bible. All throughout the Bible, through the Psalms and through the prophets and various places, you see the full orb of emotions expressed, and some of that is anger toward God. Now, she goes on to recommend three ways to process these emotions, and I might suggest you write these down if you're interested. You can email me and I will send you the full link to the article, which is worth reading the whole thing. But she recommends three ways to process these emotions of anger toward God. Number one, admit your anger to other people. That's why confession is so powerful. We get it out. We admit it to others. And you find out you're not alone. Number two, recognize the anger within yourself. Some of us are having a hard time even being honest with ourselves, disconnected from our own emotions. And then thirdly, maybe the most difficult of all, talk to God about your anger. Sometimes your prayer life may look like angry shouting. Sometimes your prayer life may not look like this holy moment sitting on your couch with a cup of coffee and the light beaming down on you and you're just speaking in unknown tongues and reading the King James Bible and having this glorious time where you ascend into the third heaven. Sometimes your prayer time might look like, God, I'm so angry. I cannot believe this and that and that my life has gone this way and that way. I'm so hurt, so frustrated, and I feel like it's your fault. Sometimes we feel that way and God welcomes the honest conversation Now, the mic drop part for me in the article is when she talks about the resilience in our relationship with God by working through our anger. And I think this is really important to hold in tension. Notice she says, several studies have taught us that people who report the strongest, most resilient relationship with God tend to endorse two types of attitudes. First, and most crucially, They see it as wrong to exit the relationship with God. They don't think that it's okay to walk away, rebel, or reject God. Second, they do see it as morally permissible to assert themselves with God, to raise complaints or to ask God tough questions. There is a clear parallel here with human relationships. When we go through a rocky road in a marriage or in a friendship, it's often best to work through the problems openly and honestly together. So, A resilient faith doesn't mean that you never feel like quitting. A resilient faith doesn't mean that you don't sometimes get angry and feel disillusioned and disappointed. A resilient faith means that when you feel those things, you can be honest with God and yourself and others about it, and you are willing to go to the mat with God and wrestle through the way that you're feeling. Amen, church? Now we'll finish here. Again, this idea of bringing... Your real self to the real Jesus is crucial. But notice there's this transition. Now that that Jeremiah has been honest with God, then this moment happens in verse 9. And again, I encourage you to read the whole chapter, but we're just going to finish with this. Verse 9. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jeremiah had a genuine calling from God that was spoken over his life at a very early age. In chapter 1, God said in verse 5, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, Jeremiah, as many have, comes up with his excuses as to why he can't do this. He says, number one, I'm too young. So for all of you young people in the room headed off to camp, God doesn't accept the I'm too young excuse. So if God has a calling on your life, teenager, then you just have to say, yes, God, because he's not going to accept the I'm too young. The other excuse, and maybe some of you have this one, is he also says, I am too young and I do not know how to speak. Anybody here? Fear of public speaking? God's not accepting that excuse either. 
I'm too young and I'm not good at public speaking. Notice what God says to Jeremiah. Do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them. I'm reading for chapter 1. For I am with you and will rescue you. And then the Lord reached out his hand. Jeremiah says he touched my mouth and said to me, I put my words in your mouth. See today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot, tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So in this moment of tension and persecution, Jeremiah early on could think back to the time when God said, before you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I called you to be a prophet to the nations. And he can remember the moment that God said, don't worry about it. I'm going to put my words in your mouth. Don't be afraid. But now in this moment, Jeremiah essentially says, God, I quit. I don't want to do this anymore. The cost is too much. I don't want to mention your word or your name anymore. Look at the price I'm paying with my life. I don't have a wife. I can't have children. I'm lonely. I've only got one friend that I had to pay. I just got beaten and put in the stocks. And I'm not going to speak in your name anymore. But the call of God, the word of God, the purposes of God were too strong. And Jeremiah describes it like fire in his heart and in his bones. A fire so strong, he said, I was exhausted trying to not do the thing that God had made me to do. You ever felt the calling of God so strong in your life that you would say, I don't want to do this, but I can't not do it. I have to do this thing because the purpose of God is too strong. The calling of God is too real. I can't not do this. Paul the Apostle he speaks this way about recognizing there are some things that I don't want to do, that I'm compelled to do, that I must do. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He said, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. And then he says this, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, you're, you know you're called to do something when the question is no longer should I do this, but woe to me if I don't do this. I believe every follower of Jesus, every man, woman, child, has a calling on their life that's so strong that it is a woe to me if I don't. You know, I frequently, as many Americans do, reflect back on September 11th as we're coming up on the month of September. And there's a couple of scenes that strike you when you think back on it, but one of the, the most compelling scenes is as you watch the New York Fire Department running into the building that everyone else is running out of. Because they had a woe to me if I don't. They, they, they knew they were called to something and it was dangerous, but it was their calling. You know you're called to do something when you're running to what everyone else is running away from. And I think of that story in 1 Samuel 17 when all of Israel was afraid of that Philistine giant Goliath they were all hiding in their tents, and when David found out about it, he went running at Goliath. He was running to something everyone else was hiding from, everyone else was running away from. There is a time in your life when it's not that the calling is pleasant or for your own pleasure or for your own joy, but you recognize, God, you've called me to this, and woe is me if I don't. It's like fire in my bones. Jeremiah said, I tried to stop being a prophet. I tried to quit, and God's word, his calling, his purpose for me was so powerful and profound that I could not contain it. It was more energy to contain it than to fully just obey God. I mean, I, and I believe that we each have this kind of purpose laid upon us by God. That the God of purpose made you on purpose for a purpose. Every single one of you in this room that God has for you a woe to you if I don't calling. A purpose, fire in the bones. Actually, beautifully, Paul writes in another place about our purpose in God. In Ephesians 2.10, familiar verse, he says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now this Greek word that Paul uses, handiwork, in Ephesians 2.10, 
is a beautiful Greek word. It's this word poema. And this word means something made, which gives us our English word, which you probably guessed by looking at it, poem or poetry. You are God's handiwork. You're His poema. You're something that God has made. You're an act of poetry and a poem of God, an artwork. Timothy Keller writes about this idea. He says it this way. Do you know what it means that you are God's workmanship? What is art? Art is beautiful. Art is valuable. And art is an expression of the inner being of the maker, of the artist. Imagine what that means. You're beautiful. You're valuable. And you're an expression of the very inner being of the artist, the divine artist, God himself. You see, when Jesus gave himself on the cross, he didn't say, I'm going to die just so you know that I love you. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to bleed for your splendor. I'm going to recreate you into something beautiful. I will turn you into something splendid and magnificent. I'm the artist. You're the art. I'm the painter. You're the canvas. I'm the sculptor. You're the marble. You don't look like much there in the quarry, but I can see, oh, I can see, Jesus is an artist. And you, beloved, are his crowning achievement His masterpiece. God has something that you must do. He created you for a purpose. There's fire in your bones. The woe to me if I don't. And listen, what God has made you to do does not have to be spectacular in the eyes of public opinion. This is not about being a famous Christian. Actually, I think we need less famous Christians in the world. Would anybody else agree with me? We're watching a, 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 a sad landslide of famous Christians falling off their famous pedestals. So I'm not talking about whether in the, in the realm of public opinion, people think your calling is worthwhile. This is about what God has made you to do and be in his world. And so whatever that calling would be, whatever that woe is me if I don't is, called by God to bring his kingdom by raising children. That's a noble cause. Called by God to bring his kingdom by serving the poor, by being an athlete, if you've been blessed with athletic ability, by being an artist or an engineer or a school teacher or a leader or a musician or a scientist or a theologian or a lawyer or loving your neighbor or even where you're at right now, there may be a purpose of God because God has placed somebody in your life that he wants you to reach for his glory. But all those purposes of God are not for your fame and for your glory, but as loving acts of worship to say, God, my life is yours, even when it's difficult. And brother, sister, if you're not living from that fire in your bones right now, if you're not living with a sense of, woe is me if I don't, I pray that that purpose would become clear to you. And if you become discouraged, let Jeremiah the prophet remind you that this isn't just about you doing what you're supposed to. This is about God making the world more beautiful through your life. You are God's handiwork. You're an extension of the kingdom. And as an act of loving obedience to God, you must be what he made you to be in the world. Amen, church? I pray you're living with fire in your heart. But if you're here today and you're angry with God or feel like giving up because of the way that the calling that you accepted has turned out. I think many of us early on accepted a calling, a sense of where God was taking us. And if you've lived life for any amount of time, you realize that what you thought life was going to be like is up here and what it turned out to be like is often down here. And it's living in this space between of disappointment, what I thought and what it actually is. But in the purposes of God, He can redeem the disappointment and even the anger if we will be honest with God. And so Jeremiah in this moment of desperation and discouragement gets brutally honest with God and once again, he re-ups his calling. He's compelled to do it again. God's word comes back to him like fire in his heart and his bones. And you know, if if you know the book of Jeremiah, you know chapter 20 is not the last chapter. There's 32 more chapters. So he's just about midway through the book, imagine if he had quit at chapter 20, how many unwritten chapters there would be. There's more for him to do. There are more chapters for him to write. And we're all aiming 
to live our life in such a way that the, at the very end of it, we can say what Jesus did at the end of his life. It is finished. I did what you put me on the earth to do, God. And it doesn't matter how long you get, how many chapters you get. If you woke up this morning, God's not done with you because when he is, you will be done. But until that day, you must, as you sit here today, realize there are more chapters for me. And there may be discouragement in your past or your present. You may be angry with God and discouraged about life right now. But I'm telling you this based on what I know of God, that the God of purpose made you on purpose for his purpose. You are his handiwork. He's not done with you. There's more chapters to write. You want to live your life to the very end so that you can say with Jesus and even the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his life has said, I'm ready to be offered up. I finished my race. I want to finish my life knowing that I lived every day and as many days in the purpose of God for my life that he's called me to. And Jeremiah's purpose was not fun. We're not talking about living the, 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 all rainbows and sunshine all the time. Sometimes the purposes of God include some suffering. But if we won't give up, if we'll continue to push forward, we will, at the end of our life, hear the words that we all long to hear from Jesus. And I want to read you the full line because sometimes we just quote, quote partial verses. But Jesus tells this parable about stewards who were given money. And when the master came back to see what they did with it, one was faithful with it and invested, the other was not. To the one who was faithful, Jesus says these words, Matthew 25, 21, the words we all long to hear, well done, finish it with me, good and faithful servant. Not fruitful, not successful, not famous, not wealthy, faithful. God calls faithfulness. The proverb says, a faithful man who can find. God hasn't asked you to be famous. He's asked you to be faithful. God hasn't asked you to be rich. He's asked you to be faithful. God hasn't asked you to be successful. He's asked you to be faithful. Well done, good and faithful, and not like social media influencer or YouTuber or you know, wealthy, you know, Fortune 500 company person or whatever thing that everyone's chasing. No, faithful servant. At my best day, I'm only rising to the level of servant of the Most High God. My ambition and your ambition, our ambition should be one. We want to be faithful servants of Yahweh. That's it. If you do that with your life, well done. That's our ambition. But notice the rest of the sentence. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. And I will put you in charge of many things. And I love this statement. Come and share your master's happiness. This is the finish line for all of us. A share in the master's happiness. That's heaven. That's the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. That is the kingdom which is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Come share in your master's happiness by being a faithful servant to the very end. This is what we all deeply crave. A share in the master's happiness. I don't know about you, but in your life, have you ever been very, 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 very happy in God. Anybody? Give me a whoop. I mean, just happy in God. And how many wish you could live in that moment? What, name that moment. You had your first kid. You got married. You were in a worship service. Uh, God spoke to your heart. Something happened, and you were just very, 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 very happy in God. You know that moment? If you've had it, you look back on it, and it's just such a beautiful moment. The master's inviting us to be faithful with that calling, that woe is me if I don't, that in the end of days, when he returns and his reward is with him, he will not only give you more to do because you've been faithful with a little, he'll make you entrust you with more. He's also going to say, now come into the master's happiness. This is the place we all long to be. And I finish with this funny little legend I found. 
It's not a true story, and you'll, you'll see this, but the legend is about the devil putting all of his tools up for sale with a price tag on each of them. So at this garage sale with the devil's tools, which include hatred and envy and jealousy, deceit, lying, and pride, all of these were on display, but off to the side there was this well-worn tool marked very high, and it was a tool labeled discouragement. And when this legend has it, the devil is asked why discouragement was marked so high. This was the answer. Because it is more useful to me than all the others. I can pry open a person's heart with that when I cannot get near them with any other tool. Once inside, I can make them do whatever I choose. It is badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since few people know that it belongs to me. Some of us, honestly, the most devilish thing happening to you right now is discouragement. You are discouraged. And God, I believe, has sent me here today to encourage the church to say, let's not let discouragement defeat us. If we will remain faithful to the thing that God has made us to do for His pleasure, then He will reward us. And so church, may God, by the Holy Spirit, bring you God-centered encouragement that you would have the courage and the bravery to continue to be who God has called you to be in this world, knowing that the Bible says you're more than a conqueror. You're God's image bearer made in His image and delight and likeness. You are His delight. You are His beloved. And you have a purpose in your life and work matters. You matter. What you're doing matters. Don't quit. We need you to keep doing what you've been called to do. You are God's handiwork. It's important. You are beloved. You are made for God's purpose, for God's beauty, to expand God's kingdom. You are God's faithful servant. Don't let discouragement end your quest to be one who is faithful to God, who will hear well done, and be invited into the Master's Happiness Church. Amen? Amen. We are more than conquerors. We don't have to be discouraged and defeated by this. Because Jesus is coming and His reward is with Him. And in that day, we're going to see what Paul the Apostle talked about. I just want us to meditate on this line and then we'll go to communion. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Paul said, This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul had been through a lot of things. They were heavy things. Some of you are going through, have gone through heavy things. The world is going through heavy things. What's happening in Afghanistan is heavy. What's happening with COVID-19 is heavy. The earthquake in Haiti is heavy. The experiences that you're living through are heavy. But Paul says, when you compare that with the eternal weight of glory, it's a light and momentary affliction in comparison with the eternity that will be ours and the happiness we will share with our master, that's why we can keep on going. Not because we're giving ourselves some false motivation, but because we actually believe that this momentary light affliction, even though it's heavy right now, not to diminish any of suffering that's in this room, but to realize that in comparison to the greater weight of glory, all the pain on earth is worth it to be faithful to Jesus. Amen, church. And so I just call us to this as we head to the communion and, and, and begin to, to sing and praise God in this moment. We fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross, he endured the cross, despising its pain. The cross was not what Jesus wanted, but it's what he endured because he knew on the other side of it was joy. Like Jeremiah, like Jesus, like Paul, like you, 
You have a purpose and a calling. And we now must do this, church. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who showed us the way to endure to the end because the end is worth it. It's really going to be worth it. Amen? Let's stand together, and I want to pray for you, and then we're going to sing and partake of the bread and the cup. Father, I, I thank you for this assembly of brothers and sisters who've come together to declare really of anything, Jesus is Lord. And in spite of all the difficulties in life that we experience and all the disillusionment and even the anger we might honestly be feeling toward God based on some circumstances that may have hit us, we can stand before you right now, God, complete, open, and honest and believe that you already know what we're feeling, you have a healing prepared for that, and you want us to come honestly before you. I pray for the discouraged in the room, those who really feel beat down, who feel like they've lost, who feel like it's a loss, who feel like quitting, who want to give up. Father, I pray for your encouragement. I pray that the fire in their bones might return, that they would realize there's more chapters to be written, there's more life to be lived, there's a purpose for their life, there's a reason that they're here, there's good that they must do. Until we're all called up into glory, we must continue forward. We have no other choice, God. So I pray for a sweeping encouragement across the room. And as we have chosen to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, I pray that we would see a model and we would feel carried and lifted to be able to go forward. That we would look at Jeremiah and his honest struggles with faith, but the fire that remained in his bones. And I pray, God, for your people to live with fire in their bones, fire in their hearts that they might do what they do, not because they've been told to, but because there's fire, there's calling, there's purpose. So as we prepare ourselves to receive the bread and the cup, emblems of the life of Jesus, I pray that we would be able to come before you honestly and openly, without fear of reprisal, knowing that you already know what we're thinking. So God, I pray that you would just lift our hearts now. If you're here today and you just are feeling overwhelmed and discouraged and you just want to do some business with the Lord, there are men and women in the back right over here that would just love to pray with you, pray for you. I'd encourage you to go back there, be prayed for, confess how you're feeling and what's going on and believe that through that honest confession, God really is going to answer prayer. Let's make this a house of prayer, not just a house of singing and preaching, but a house of prayer. And then as we sing this song, May you do business with God. Be honest with Him about things that you've done that you're not proud of, about feelings that you're having about Him, maybe discouragement, disappointment, and anger. He already knows. So let's come to the communion table as honest Christians, confessing Christians. In Jesus' name, let's sing it together.